Well, this morning we are kicking off a short four-week series out of the book of Philippians. We're calling this series Courage. Uh, what is courage? Uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Brian used this definition earlier today in, in service and I liked it. Ernest Hem- Hemingway said, courage is nothing but grace under pressure. I like that. Grace under pressure. Uh, another thing courage is, I'll give you a general George Panton's definition of courage. He says, courage is fear holding on one minute longer. I heard a great story this past week that came out of Andover, Ohio, just about an hour and a half northeast of here. And apparently back in 1989, a gentleman named Ray Blackenship was in his house uh, at his kitchen counter uh, preparing his morning breakfast. And he looked out the window to, to just gaze at the beauty of God's creation, and he noticed that there was a girl getting washed away in a flooded out drainage duct, uh, drainage ditch. And uh, this was concerning because he knew that draining, drainage ditch ultimately would go underneath the highway and head toward a main culvert. And if the, the girl got into that culvert, culvert, it was the point of no return. She, she would drown and die. So without hesitation, Ray Blackenship ran out of his house, took off towards this flooded drainage ditch, and when he got in front of the girl, he dove in and grabbed hold of her hand. He and the girl started turning end over end uh, countless times underneath the road. They're getting towards that main culvert. He still has the girl's hand. And about three feet from getting swallowed up into that, he felt something protruding out of the ground, uh, out of this duck, and it it was a rock. So he grabbed a hold of that rock with his free hand, and he's holding on to the girl with his other hand. And he just thought to himself, if I can just hold on till the fire department gets here, we're going to be okay. Well, he actually did a little bit better than that. He, uh, by the time the rescue squad uh, arrived on scene, he and the, the girl was already on the shore uh, get, getting cleaned up from, from this experience of what just happened. Well, on April 12, 1989, Ray Blackenship was awarded the Coast Guard's Silver Life-Saving Medal which is certainly a fitting medal to give somebody who dove into a flooded uh, drainage ditch and saved this little girl's life. However, nobody in that space that was there when he was getting that award really knew the great risk that Ray Blackenship was in. You want to know why? He couldn't swim. He couldn't swim. You know, it, it is true that in hard situations, God's grace gives us the courage to do just some of the most unthinkable things, right? Like jump into a river, even though you can't swim, to save somebody else's life. Or as Paul will tell us in the letter to the Philippians, God's grace can even give us the courage and the willingness to extend that grace to other people. People who we think are undeserving of it. We're going to look at this text, uh, just the first seven verses out of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And uh, listen to these words of encouragement from the Apostle Paul. He says, Paul and Timothy, he's writing on behalf of himself and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. 
It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you share in God's grace with me both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it about on the day of the Lord. This is Christ's word for his people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, in the midst of these few moments where we just offer some reflection on your life-giving word, I ask that you be present, that you would just bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be a profit to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, out of all of the Apostle Paul's letters that we have in our Bible that he has written to the early church, Philippians is my absolute favorite. It's my favorite Bible, and the reason being because it is four chapters of Paul just simply encouraging a congregation of people. And I I believe one of my spiritual gifts is that of encouragement, and I also like to be encouraged uh, by other people. In fact, in college, uh, Meredith often makes fun of me for this, but I was part of a secret society at Roberts Wesleyan College. I was part of what was called the Barnabas Bunch. Barnabas was a, is known as the son of encouragement in Acts, uh, chapter 2. And what we would do is we would secretly write notes to people who needed encouragement, and then we would send them anonymously through the campus mail to those people to help maybe give them a pickup for that day. I was part of a secret society. Not that cool, is it? You write encouraging notes to people. But it was. It was awesome. I love encouraging people, and I love myself being encouraged. Um, the thing about the letter to the Philippians that, that Paul writes is that it, it almost didn't happen. Paul was never supposed to go to Philippi. You see, as he embarked on all of his missionary journeys around Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, planning churches and, and telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, he was planning on going south in Turkey. However, in a dream, the Lord was calling him to go north and west, to go from Asia over to Europe into Macedonia. Uh, here's what's incre- incredible about this. Because Paul obeyed God, uh, God's uh, voice in that moment, God used Paul to change the spiritual direction, hear this, of an entire continent. Uh, Philippi was a very prosperous European city in the country of Macedonia, and it was a, a Roman military colony. And because of such, these people loved everything Roman. They were immersed in Roman culture, in Roman lifestyle, in Roman values. Now, when Paul arrived to any, uh, to give you a little background on Paul, whenever he arrived to a new area, a new geographical area, his first order of business was go to the Jewish synagogue of that area. Go there, interact with the Jews because he himself was Jewish, and then share with them the good news of Christ and see how many people he could, could get saved and then use those people to set up a church in that geographical location. Well, Philippi didn't have a synagogue. So instead of obviously going there, Paul went down to the river for the hope of finding some people that might be sympathetic to the Jewish cause. Well, down at the river in in Philippi, he meets a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a a very well-to-do business lady, and uh, Paul built relationship with her in that moment, then share with her the good news of Jesus Christ, and lo and behold, Lydia came to faith in Christ. She believed in the gospel of God. After that, she and her whole entire family was baptized. She then invited 
Paul and his team to go to her home, and there you have it, the very first church born on Europe. Now, as exhilarating as this moment was for these new believers, not everybody in Macedonia and Philippi was excited about this newfound faith in Christ Jesus. And the reason being, and here's what I really want to stress, the reason people weren't excited in Philippi over, over people believing in Jesus is because the call of Christ changes the values and the focus of a person's life. Meaning in this context, a commitment to Christ was adversely affecting the Roman way of life. Long and short, Paul's team was attacked, they were beaten, they were thrown in prison, and they were eventually asked to leave Philippi, but not before they had built a strong relationship with the Philippian church. You know, with Paul literally being kicked out of the country, these new Christians under Lydia's leadership had to navigate all the expectations and all the guidelines to holiness, all while living in the midst of a culture and a people that was anything but holy. Church in America, does this sound anything like our context in the 21st century? Right? You know, as they found themselves in this situation, the Philippians had to ask some really tough questions, questions the American church in 21st century has to ask as well. And, and, and really, all, all the questions revolved around two. The first, how in the world do we continue to live a vibrant faith in the midst of a hostile environment? But maybe more importantly than that, initially, is how on earth do we get along with people within the church that are so different than us? That can be tough, can't it? Like we know we are united under the lordship of Jesus Christ, but man, there's always that one brother or sister in Christ that is just annoying, right? Hurtful, frustrating. I see people patting Nate McConnell in the back back there right now. What do you do with those type of people, right? Sure, you believe in Jesus Christ, but what does it mean to actually follow him in real time with real people in a real place? Church, I don't know about you, but, but for me, some of the hardest and most challenging moments to extend grace to other people is not actually with those outside of the church who don't know better, but those within the church who should know better, right? Have you ever heard of EGRs? Anyone? EGRs? It's, it's an acronym. It stands for Extra Grace Required People. You know those people, right? You know, the people that, man, you just have to figure out how can I extend extra grace to this, question, uh, this Christian or this family member and have enough patience to endure a moment with them? You know who I'm talking about. It's that creepy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, right? It's that in-law that circles around about once a year over the Christmas holiday. It's, it's that one member of your weekly small group that just grates on your last nerve. By the way, as an aside... If you can't think of that person in your mind right now, you know what that means? It's you. It's you. You're the EGR. Listen, when dealing with these tough relationships, Paul is reminding us that to follow Jesus, to pursue Jesus, it's worth every piece of our lives. He's reminding us that to live for Christ with our whole heart, it's worth it. Even when we're doing it in the midst of hostile cultural context, 
he says it's worth it even when we're getting frustrated with that one brother or that one sister in Christ. He says you extend grace to that one other person. Why? Because faith grows and deepens in both healthy and united Christian community. And because some things are just better to let go of, right? You know, as you think of those things you let go of, how can you do it? You might be thinking to yourself, and I would just say you need to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit in those moments. And when you do so, you will not only survive those moments, but you might actually find yourself thriving and even discovering joy in the midst of it. You know, this idea, the, the courage to be gracious to other people, is rather an interesting way to frame it, isn't it? What is grace? Grace is this spiritual reality that we, do not, or that we get what we don't deserve. It's the opposite of mercy. Mercy is that spiritual reality that we don't get what we do deserve, right? So we don't deserve God's unconditional love, but he gives it to us anyways. That's grace. We do deserve the wrath of God because of our sinfulness, but he withhold it, withholds it. Paul says in, in, in Philippians, he speaks of receiving both grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. This, the reason um, uh, this letter is so amazing to me is, again, because of the way uh, Paul just frames conversation and just this encouraging tone throughout the entire thing. Uh, scholars, biblical scholars, call Philippians Paul's happiest letter or the letter of joy. In all the other letters we have in our Bible that Paul has written, he launches into some theological issue, right, pertaining to the church. Uh, he, he wants us to understand these real profound spiritual truths. We just went through Romans, right, for, for seven, eight weeks, and we still are in small groups uh, as we continue to wade through Romans. And, and Romans is this really just exhaustive book where, where Paul is trying to, to get us to understand the gospel of God and the ins and outs of the gospel of God and why it is so important to our lives. And th then you have letters to the church in Corinth, First and Second Corinthians, where, where Paul is really rebuking the congregation. He's, he's challenging uh, their, their, their interactions and their relationships with one another. Paul is always passionate. But with the letter to the Philippians, we don't see Paul this warm and affectionate in any other letter. It's a letter rooted in, in deep and seasoned friendships. There's nothing superficial about it. Conversations are candid. It's secured. It's fueled by love. You have those relationships with people, don't you? Some of my old college roommates, we'll go years without seeing each other. We'll then see each other, and it will feel like we've just picked off up where we left off. That's a, that's a beautiful relationship. Now, now, looking at Philippians chapter 1, Paul offers us some spiritual truths when it comes to, to relating to one another in the truth or in the church and then helping one another live both courageously and graciously in life. The first spiritual truth Paul wants to offer to us this morning is we are all partners in the gospel together. He does that with the starting verses of, of, of this text. Paul starts by identifying himself and Timothy as servants of God. That's what he highlights right out of the gate. He calls himself a servant. 
So Paul doesn't start this letter out by talking about the position of leadership he has over this church, but rather he talks about the position he has in proximity to Christ. Friends, be wary of people who, who get too caught up in earthly titles, who really want to make known that all the letters they have on the end of their name. As Christians, there really is no greater title than that of servant of Jesus Christ. We are here to serve because we are servants of Jesus Christ. We live in obedience to the call of Jesus. He then addresses the congregation he's writing to as the saints of Philippi. Again, he seeks to humble himself, and then he seeks to honor those he's reaching out to. He wants the Philippians to know how much respect he actually has for them. He wants them to know that he holds high regard for them, and that as saints, that they matter deeply to what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. You know, when we hear that word saint, we think of some pretty holy people, don't we? Maybe Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II. We might think of all the apostles um, that started the early church. We may think of some of the, the church fathers in, in the opening centuries uh, where the church was getting uh, rooted and, and developed. But here's the thing. They are certainly saints, yes, but so is every other person who has claimed a faith in Jesus. If you are here and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, guess what? You're a saint, whether you want to be or not. And as a saint, we are all set apart for the mission of God. You know, as we interact and relate with one another, friends, it's got to start with a spirit of humility. After all, we are all servants of Christ Jesus. And it also has to start with a desire to deeply respect each other. After all, we are all set apart for the important work of the gospel, whether that's as a hairdresser, a pastor, a police officer, an engineer, a teacher, so on and so forth. The first truth Paul wants us to know in these opening verses is we are all partners in the gospel together. If you are part of this church, if you belong to Jesus Christ, let me say it again, you are a partner in the gospel our courage to live out our faith, to extend grace to other people, is derived, first and foremost, from our shared partnership as Christians. That's what Paul's saying. Spiritual truth number two. He says, God began a good work in you when you received Jesus. God began a good work for you. Look, look at verse three. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul says he thanks God every time one of their names is mentioned. Why? Paul thanks God because it was God who began a good work in them. It was God who brought about their salvation. And because of that, Paul is just filled with gratitude. Paul loves the Philippians with a Christ-like love. And, and he expresses that love by praying for them. He prays for a number of things. If you continue to walk down that first chapter of, uh, in Philippians... He prays that the love of God would overflow through them. He, he prays for their own spiritual growth and understanding. He prays for their, their, their lifestyle to be becoming of Christ and also their witness in the world. And finally, he prays that their lives, no matter what they're doing, would bring glory to their God. Man, what a marvelous testimony as to how we really should view each other in the body of Christ, right? Right? 
Friends, how empowering is it when you know people are praying for you? Isn't that empowering? I mean, I, I can have a rough day if someone says, Jared, I just want to know I'm praying for you. That just fills me up with the Spirit. I mean, it empowers me. One of my favorite moments where this takes place is in the gospel narrative. Uh, Jesus is having his uh, last meal with his disciples. Just take you there for a moment. So that meal starts with Jesus. uh, After the, the disciples wrap around the table, Jesus gets up and grabs a bucket and then goes and washes each of their feet, right? And when he's done, he sits back down and he says, what I just did for you, this act of service, you need to do for one another. He then enjoys a meal with them. And during that meal, he institutes what we've become known as the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, where in the breaking of the bread and the drinking from the cup, we remember the sacrificial love that Christ shed for us on the cross. And when that meal was over, Jesus then begins to talk to his disciples about how he's going to go to a cross and die for the sins of humanity. Peter wants nothing to do with it. So this is what Luke in Luke 22 says in response to Peter's rebuke. Jesus responded by saying, Simon Peter, listen. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that, you, that your own faith might not fail. Satan has asked to tear you down, to pluck you out, but Peter, I have prayed for you that you would stand firm. Now, we know how the story goes. Peter would deny Jesus three times before the, the cock crowed, the night he was betrayed and arrested. But Peter would come back to faith in Jesus, right? And he would eventually be known as somebody whose life was full of both courage and grace. Man, I have to believe that Jesus' own prayers for Peter in that moment strengthened Peter's resolve. Friend, that's the power of prayer. That is the power of prayer. Let me ask you a question. Do you thank God for each other in the body of Christ? Look around at each other real quick. Does the mere mention of another believer's name spur on in you a spontaneous prayer of thanksgiving to God? Paul thanks God for the Philippians every single time he remembers them and he intercedes on their behalf. Friends, there is power in prayer. As a local congregation, we believe in the power of prayer. Here's the third truth Paul gives us in this letter to the Philippians. He says that that good work that God started in you, that will one day come to completion. Here it is, verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is confident. Other English translations will say Paul is fully persuaded that God will finish this good work that he began. Why can he say that so confidently? Why can he be so fully persuaded? Well, it's because it was God who started it. And God always finishes what God starts. Listen, if you are a believer of Jesus Christ, God has a work for you to do. Can I say that again? If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, one, you were made for good works, out of good works, and also God has a good work for you to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, but good works with a purpose, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
Friends, God began a good work in you when you received Jesus Christ. You, in that moment of, of your profession of faith, you became a new creation. You became a new creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Listen, when you received Jesus Christ, you just didn't walk away unchanged in that moment. You realize that, right? God who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion on the day of Christ's return. That word until, it means an ongoing process. Again, you don't just receive Christ and then do nothing. And suddenly, sometime before you go to heaven, you get to the point of perfection to, to go to heaven. No, no, God is working in you every single day, making you more like Jesus Christ. Our world, our culture needs more Christians like Jesus Christ. Friends, he has good works for us to do, works of courageous love, works of mercy, works of grace. And do you ever, let me ask a question. Do you ever get discouraged with your walk in the Lord, with your spiritual progress, or is it just me? Man, there are days in my life where I get caught off guard in a moment, and the way I react to it is anything but Christ-like. And when I all is said and done, I just kick myself in the pants. It's like, Jared, you should be better than this. You, know, you should be further along in your walk with Christ. This stuff shouldn't set you off anymore. Let me give you an analogy. I will often think of my spiritual walk, how it feels a lot like my creaky hips when I wake up in the morning. Like I get out of bed, my hips are all stiff, and I'm stumbling around, I'm trying to loosen them up. Man, it just can be so frustrating, right? Because they shouldn't work like that. Sometimes the hardest person... I think for us to extend grace to is ourself. Paul is telling us to not be discouraged. The same God who began a good work will carry it out to completion, even if it's two steps forward and one step back, two steps forward and three steps back for a season. Uh, Billy Graham, I'm going to end with this. Billy Graham uh, the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, maybe this, of the, this world has ever seen, married an incredible woman named Ruth. Ruth Graham was her name. And, and, and Ruth uh, has this story she tells when she was driving down the highway one day, she passed a road sign that she just fell in love with. And after she saw that sign, she said to those in the car with her, I want the words of that sign on my tombstone when I die. Can you read the words? It says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. This first chapter in, in, in Philippians, friends, might not seem like it has much to do with courage. And in a sense, I could probably argue it and say it has a lot more to do with joy or thankfulness or, or maybe even Christian community. But the truth is, I think it takes courage and intentionality to humble ourselves and to thank God even for the difficult people in our lives. It takes courage and humility to pray for one another continually. It takes courage and humility to extend grace, even if extending that grace is to yourself. Friends, we are all under construction. You know that, right? We are all under construction as we live each day trying to, to be faithful to the calling God has placed in our lives. 
And to that I say, thank God for you. Church, I am so happy we are partners in the gospel together. There is no other people group that I want to be with in this season of my life than in you, and I say that with complete sincerity. God has begun a good work in each of us and within this church family, and he will see it to completion. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for, thank you for reminding us that, that we are your workmanship, each set apart for good works when we claimed your Son, our Savior, or Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Lord, we confess that sometimes it is just rather difficult to, to be courageous enough to, to be grace dispensers in a hostile culture, really even in our own faith family. So Lord, Lord, I ask in this moment that you'd give each of us the resolve to be patient with one another, to love each other through the tough times, and to remember that we are all partners in the gospel together as we live out our mission of connecting all to Christ to become healthy in you and courageous in the way we love. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.